What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. People thought we were going to be rather nice and middle class, and boy, were they in for a shock. People tend to think of comics as being very kind of throwaway entertainment, but this was some deep political stuff. 2000 AD was something radically different from anything that had been done before. They were sort of glorious hippie anarchists. They were doing it better than the American comics. This isn't like Spider-Man. It was, it was dangerous. For a nine-year-old boy, it was life-changing. You don't want something your teacher likes. Jesus, throw it out of the fucking window. I don't know what it was if everybody was just on rave drugs. He's never really gone for sort of the traditional Hollywood Disney route. It gave creative people the chance to do anything. There wouldn't be a vertigo if there wasn't 2000 AD. It's an, an enormously strong visual influence. I think it's also a very strong subversive influence. Fuck all that punk rock left-wing shit. I am really pumped. We were driving it further and further towards the edge. We were the lunatics who had taken over the asylum. We got it right at the beginning. Fuck off. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'd rather have an unprotected sex with a dead baboon's ass. <laughs> There's always a lot of violence in my stories because it's fun. It's mad stuff. It couldn't appear anywhere else but 2018. It was saying that to the establishment. Maybe the world's just not ready for that. <laughs> Anyone can make a comic. There's only one to this maybe. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Josh Hadley. It's a comic book show. I'm a comic book nerd, and you needed me on this one, Mike. Yeah, I definitely need you on this one. We are talking about Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD. 2000 AD, it might have been a year, but it was also a comic book. Technically, it's a weekly comic magazine from England with between three and five serialized stories. Most people will know it as that book Judge Dredd came from. And that's probably where I know it the most, because I will say that coming into this documentary, I really was not that familiar with 2000 AD. So I am the polar opposite of you. I was never going to the comic book shop and picking up 2000 AD. 
it being a British comic book, even today it is still cost prohibitive to be an American comic reader of 2000 AD. Actually, with, with, with the digital stuff that they do on their website, it's much easier now. But I, back in the 1990s when I started reading 2000 AD, I'm in Wisconsin. Who the, who the hell gets British comic books here, right? Let's say a Marvel comic at that time was a dollar to a dollar twenty-five, and maybe an Image comic was two bucks at the high end. To import a 2000 AD, which is only like a dollar or a pound or whatever in England, was almost four to four dollars and fifty cents, and it was a weekly comic book. So 2000 AD was very cost prohibitive to read on a regular basis. So I would I would tend to pick up usually a month at a time. I'd pick up four issues and then go three or four months without picking up another one and then get a couple of more and whatnot. So I would be reading them, them being all serialized stories, all broken up, and I just decided this isn't worth it. So I waited for the trades that came out in America. Yeah, when you talked about regular comic books costing about a dollar, dollar twenty-five. I will say that the day I gave up comics was the day I paid a dollar for like a Spider-Man. I was like, no, I can't really afford to do this because when I quit collecting comics, I was collecting I don't know how many titles. I was really suckered in by the cross stories, you know, that whole see Daredevil number forty-four. You know, see Amazing Spider-Man number 55. And when you collect Spider-Man or you're interested in Spider-Man, there are so many freaking titles. And, like, even when I went back into comics in, like, the mid to late 90s, I was like, I'm just going to buy Spider-Man and that's it. And they were like, every week there was another book to buy. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. And at that time, it was well over a dollar. So I'm like, this is nuts. I just can't do this. So that you were spending $4 for a single comic, though I am glad to hear that there are multiple stories in there. I don't know to commend you or say you're crazy, but definitely some dedication going on. How about that? I was really enjoying it because, like they point out in the Future Shock documentary, I think they oversell it a little bit, which we'll get into later. 2000 AD was very different from most American comics. I mean, at that time in the early 90s when I was reading 2000 AD, the only thing even close to this was heavy metal. And heavy metal was not at its highest point then. I would say heavy metal was at its most 2000 AD-ish in the late 70s, early 80s, the early days of heavy metal, which were also the early days of 2000 AD. They were very much running neck and neck. But at that point... In the early 80s, you also had Warren's in 1984, 1994, and Epic Illustrated putting out arguably higher quality material than either of those books. So at that same time, 2000 AD really was something different. Because I mean, you got to remember, Mike, this is when Marvel was doing all the gimmick covers and all of that god-awful artwork and where the art was supposed to sell the book over the story. You had Image coming in, and then you had 2000 AD with this beautiful black-and-white artwork, very stark. The stories were much more adult, and I don't mean adult in graphic, although they did have that. I mean adult in just tone, and it was something different because you have to admit it, Mike, American comics and British comics are very different stylistically. Oh, yeah. I can't say that I'm super familiar with British comics. And really, when it came to like getting more into the real comics, you know, the, the good stuff, as it were, 
that took me so many years, you know, I mean, I was, like I said, I was really about the superheroes. I was really about the Marvel titles, but yeah, it wasn't until years and years later that I was talking to a friend of mine, Mike Thompson, and it was just like, okay, I need new stuff. I need to read some really good stuff. And he was the one that turned me on to the Watchmen. And the way he described it, he was just like, this is the Citizen Kane of comics. And I know a lot of people can be like, oh, it's the Citizen Kane of XYZ. And he was like, no, no, no. The way that Citizen Kane changed filmmaking is the way that the Watchmen changed comics. And I was just like, oh, okay. You know, no superfluous, you know, kind of uh, talking it up. He, he knows me and he knows my language. And so when he said it that way, I was like, Oh, all right. And then finally picking that up, I was like, okay. And yeah, that was when I was just like, this is what comics can do. And I really didn't know that. And so that turned me on kind of retroactively to the art and to the writing. And I got into the Alan Moore stories and I was just like, oh, and then eventually traced them back into the 2000 AD days. I was like, yeah, now I get it. Now I get it. There were three comics that came out, all from DC, almost in a succession, that did what you said, that really changed the field in America. And only one of them was British, and that was Watchmen. Otherwise, you had Frank Miller with Dark Knight Returns and Mike Grell with Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters. All three of those were were just – they were a shift in comics. They were so adult without being pandering, and they were so different. And they were so different that I remember reading about Watchmen, Longbow Hunters, and Dark Knight Returns in Rolling Stone of all places. I, I've got old 1986, 1987 Rolling Stones where they're talking about these as this is not comic books as you know them. And that's that's the truth. And Alan Moore, he obviously brought that from 2000 AD. I mean, in all honesty, Watchmen, I'm not saying stylistically or anything, but well, maybe stylistically a little bit, is very much an offshoot of his Halo Jones stuff from 2000 AD. You can see how, when you go back and read The Ballad of Halo Jones, you can see how stylistically his storytelling is what would become Watchmen. So tell me a little bit more about 2000 AD. What were some of the stories that were in there, and why was it you were willing to pour out that extra money for something like this? Weirdly enough, I didn't even know what 2000 AD was until I Am the Law from Anthrax. And it was like, who is this Judge Dredd character? And you remember in the music, in the video, they would show you know, panels of the comic and whatnot. And, and then I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember seeing this character in, you know, Wizard hadn't destroyed the comic book magazine scene yet by being juvenile and stupid. And so you had magazines like Comic Scene and the Comics Journal and that. And I remember seeing this character and it not being an American comic book. And I don't think Fleetway had done the American reprints yet, which were just a bastardization of the artwork. Because, see, when 2000 AD was a magazine, they were a magazine, magazine sized and formatted, okay? So when Fleetway America brought the comic books over, they had to shift the pages to make them American comic book sized. So they used a lens to stretch the artwork out to fit onto an American comic book page. So the American reprints were ugly. And 2000 AD was printed on that that really pulpy newsprint of the late 70s, early 80s. 
So it did not reprint very well. You know, lots of little black dots everywhere to fill in for shadows and whatnot. So the American reprints were ugly. So th that didn't help things. But I just remember there was this character that I kept seeing written about. And then my comic book store, I don't know if they just bought it on a whim or if I just never noticed it before. I saw – I don't remember what the exact issue was, but there was this striking cover of Judge Dredd smashing a zombie's face in. And I was like, what the hell is this? And, and I bought this, and then I realized this was that character that I was seeing in Comics Journal. This was that character in the Anthrax song. And then there were other stories. There was not just Judge Dredd, even though he's arguably the star of 2000 AD. You also had Rogue Trooper and Strontium Dog. And then going back, you know, at, at this point, Halo Jones was over. You had Halo Jones, and then you had the Future Shocks. And then the editor of 2000 AD is a blue alien that eats styrofoam cups named Tharg and whatnot. It was, it was very different because I'd been picking up heavy metal since long before I was legally allowed to. The, the bookstore here considered heavy metal a comic book, and so they would never stock it in the adult section. So I've been buying heavy metal since I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, and I should not have been. But it, it reminded me of – like this is like heavy metal but with less boobs, with, with less overt sex because you know, heavy metal was much more about titillation. They, they had their very serious stories, but they were much more about titillation. 2000 AD was much more about violence. And like I said, I'm a 12, 13, 14-year-old boy. I love seeing guys getting torn apart by dinosaurs and Judge Dredd, you know, punching a dude so hard his fist goes all the way through his face and stuff like that. As a 14-year-old boy, that's awesome. I first knew of Judge Dredd when I started working at the movie theater when I was 18, and there was one guy there. This is one of those like horrible situations where you meet a fan of something, and the fan is kind of douchey, so then you associate the thing that they like with being douchey. So it's like he was a huge Judge Dredd fan, and he had like his locker was decorated and stuff. And nobody decorates their locker at like at work, you know. But he had this huge Judge Dredd thing, and it was him and this other guy, and they were just big Judge Dredd fans. And I was just like, man, if these a holes like this guy, well, there's really nothing here. And then when I, I, my first real exposure after that was via the Sylvester Stallone movie. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this isn't good at all. This is what those guys liked. <laughs> well, so, okay, to be fair about the Stallone movie, because 2008 has had quite a few different movie properties, radio properties, TV, etc. The, the 95 Stallone Judge Dredd, they got everything right except the script. The look the costumes, the props, the vehicles, the backgrounds, even the tone of the of Mega City One was dead on to the comic. So I hate to say it, but that Judge Dredd is kind of an accurate representation of the comic. It's just a terrible story. Does that make sense? Is Rob Schneider in the store in the comic? No. But Rob Schneider was added at Stallone's insistence. I will tell you that I actually have watched the Judge Dredd movie probably in the dozens just because it is a great thing to have on TV. And I enjoy seeing Armand Asante just feasting on scenery, especially when he does the... If you had to have a clone of Stallone, Armand Asante was brilliant casting. 
and those weird blue eyes that they're both sporting and stuff. And of course, I, you know, I, one of these days I want to put together a compilation of the many deaths of Max von Sydow. So that's another good one to add to the compilation. Yeah, because Max von Sydow is amazing in that. Jurgen Prock now is just. Uh, this is something I've never noticed about movies, and or I've never understood about movies in general. Why is such an obviously evil character never seen as such until their big reveal? He might as well have had a mustache that he was twiddling. Yeah, Jurgen Prochnow was so obviously a villain that it was surprising none of the other characters could see, this guy's kind of a villain. The only other person I can think of immediately is Sinestro. Guys, his name is Sinestro. To be fair, Duck Dodgers noticed that right away. Hey, you know, in person, you really do look like the devil. I know. I get that a lot. I wasn't familiar with uh, I Am the Law. I was more familiar with I Am the Man by Anthrax. It took me a long time before I finally got into Dread, and then really what it was for me was maybe it was a year after we did the RoboCop episode on the projection booth. I can't remember who it was, and I feel really bad, but somebody wrote to me and they said, you should have asked Ed Newmeyer about his work on a Judge Dredd script, which he then kind of scrapped and turned into RoboCop. And of course, Newmeyer didn't say anything about that to me. And then it was like, I don't know how long after that, that the, the Dread movie came out, like the amazing, to me anyway, Dread movie. And as I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh, wow, this is really ringing true. As I'm watching Carl Urban playing Dread, and there's a part where he goes over to a woman and he doesn't say the line exactly like, you know, contact a rape crisis center, but it is very similar to that. And I was just like, oh, wow, yeah, this this guy is like RoboCop. And then I'm looking at the helmet and everything, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't really have ever seen Alex Murphy's face, though it does make him human. And that's really kind of the point of why we see it and when we see it in the story in RoboCop. But I was just like, oh, all right, this is really starting to click for me. Even more when you watch the documentaries, there have been like nine different DVD releases. I don't remember which DVD it's on, but one of them, the early sculpt of what RoboCop's costume would be was Judge Dredd. He had the comic book Judge Dredd's costume, essentially. This was known in the industry at the time. The producer of the 1995 Judge Dredd, Charles Lippincott, he's held the rights since the 80s, said he actually considered suing RoboCop for plagiarizing Judge Dredd because he knew about how it started as a Judge Dredd script when, when then, then they couldn't secure the rights or something like that. And he considered suing them, and he said in retrospect, he probably should have. But by the time he decided he probably should have, it was too late to do so. Everybody in the industry knew it was RoboCop was Judge Dredd. It was just us not in the industry. We didn't. And me not being smart enough to put two and two together, but now it, it makes total sense. And that's one of the things I like about this documentary is they don't necessarily shy away from some of those things. I mean, I think you were the one that, that kind of hit me to Richard Stanley's hardware being a, a ripoff of uh, a 2000 AD title. So I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense as well. Especially, you know, they talk about it in here and everything. So I'm like, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense too. Which would technically make it not only the first 2000 AD movie, but the first Judge Dredd movie. 
because that story, Shock, S-H-O-K, actually is set in the Judge Dredd universe. So if you want to be technical, Hardware is a Judge Dredd movie that Judge Dredd is not in. This is the weird thing about Hardware. Now, I don't know this one way or the other, but with Richard Stanley being very much a an artist's rights advocate and his there are two versions of the story of how hardware ripped off the shock story one is they just straight ripped it off and thought they did wouldn't get caught that's 2000 AD's side of it now richard stanley his version is essentially because he was making this movie for miramax that the weinsteins told him they had secured the rights and so he thought it was an actual adaptation and not a ripoff so I don't know who to believe, but the Weinsteins being not the most above-board people out there, I'm going to say Richard Stanley's version is probably a little closer to the truth because I can't see him ripping off this story so blatantly and him being from England and him being such an artist's rights advocate. I can't see him knowingly ripping this off like this, and I don't think it's a John Harlan Ellison situation where it was an accidental ripoff because it's – I mean, the story is only four pages. It was a four-page future shock, but every panel of that story is in hardware. That's not a coincidence. I just, I want to believe Richard Stanley thought he had the rights. Yeah, I really want to believe that too, especially, you know, I, I pull for Richard Stanley because it feels like at every turn, he seems to have gotten a little screwed over. And I don't know if it's just that some witch doctor cast a curse on him or something, but he hasn't had that much luck. Apparently, they've owned the story. They've owned that it's a 2008 DD story by the fact that the DVDs have a credit crediting future, the future shock in 2008 and the British DVD release of hardware actually includes the, the shock story as a mini comic book in the DVD case. Huh, so, nice. th- so they've straight out owned that, yeah, this came from that. Fair enough. Now, you told me that the VHS, though, didn't have any of that. No, the VHS had no credit on it whatsoever for 2000 AD, and I think that's what sparked the lawsuit. So the VHS releases do not have that credit, but all the digital releases do. Hey, let's go ahead and take a break and play back an interview. Uh, We've got the director and one of the producers of Future Shock can play that back here. It is uh, Paul Goodwin, who is the director, and Sean Hogan, the producer. And we'll hear that in just a few moments after these brief messages. They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like two professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 miles for Terrence. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. 
if you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faithon. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I'm Paul Goodwin. I've spent the last two and a bit years living future shock the story of 2000 ad yeah it was it's been a lot of work it's a it's a small independent documentary which we funded ourselves and produced you know it's been a long road but we're really really proud that we had a u.s we've got a u.s um deal coming and we had a limited theatrical and dvd release in the uk so we're, we're really really proud i'm sean hogan i produced future shock uh, story of 2000 AD. I'm normally a writer director, but for my sins, I I acted as producer on this one, and I'll never do it again. How did you guys meet? We were at college together, like 20 odd years ago. We were at a, a college which did drama and film, so we kind of yeah, we we had a lot of interesting experiences because most of us were not really actors, but so we were just there for the film stuff. But we we acted in a lot of terrible student productions and all sorts. But, you know, we became good friends and sort of stayed in touch ever since. And we always spoke about doing something together one day. Paul and the, the two guys he works with, uh, Nick and Jim, who we were all we were, who were both in college with us as well, they formed a company and they started doing a lot of corporate work. Uh, and I went the sort of starving indie filmmaker route. But we always said we'd do something together one day. And then finally this came around. And um, so we did it. So who had the initial idea of doing a documentary about 2000 AD? Guilty. Sean and I were out having a, a, a drink one night, and like, like he says, we were, we were chatting about you know something we could get involved with, that we could work on, but something that would really be exciting. 
you know, something that would light a fire and get us get our juices going. You know, it just came up in conversation. We we we're both big comic book fans. Both read 2000 AD when we were young, and I remembered that the BBC had done a documentary uh, series a few years before, and they'd gone to the trouble of interviewing Pat Mills on a very very small segment that they did about. 2000 AD uh, it was a British comics documentary called comics Britannia and they gave like in a three hour three episode show they gave like 10 minutes to 2000 AD and you know it was it was just gutting it was uh you know that they had they had Pat sat down and interviewed who 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 I'd never heard interviewed at that point you know this one of my heroes from from my youth and I just felt it was a really wasted opportunity. So I'd been burning on it for years. And I said, Sean, you know, imagine how cool it would be if we could, you know, spend some time going around interviewing all the all the top names from 2000 AD, asking the questions we wanted to hear the answers to. And, you know, what a great what a great film that would make. What a great story to tell. Somehow I I dragged him into it. <laughs> well, no, for me, it was it was kind of a no brainer. It's every now and then someone just comes up with an idea, and you just go, "Yes, that's a great idea." Why has no one done that? So when Paul said it, I was kind of instantly on board. Uh, I just wanted to see it happen. And so the thing was, it was uh, like I said, I'm not not a producer by trade, but because I've sort of been working in the film industry for like the last ten, fifteen years or so, and I'm got the high blood pressure to prove it i i knew that i could sort of help get it out there in the world and it was like these guys had the means to make it and i had the means to sort of get it out there and make it a reality so i was just kind of like i will do whatever needs to be done to help this happen just because i want to i want to see that film and i remember surely you could, you would you were like calling me and texting me and stuff and saying are you serious and I was like, yeah. "Yeah, I'm fucking serious. Yeah, I'm deadly serious. Let's let's do it. This is this is it. This is the thing. Because if somebody else made this, uh, uh, you know, a we'd be there to to see it, but b we'd we'd be saying like, Shh, why didn't we think of that? You know, <laughs> I, I meet too many people who just talk about doing stuff, and you get a lot of that in film. You get a lot of people who spend their entire lives in development." And I just like to do stuff and it's a, just a case of like whatever level you do it on, whether it's like really small or whether you can get more money or whatever else. It's just like I just like to be working and I like to do interesting things. And this was a very interesting thing as far as I was concerned. So how did the project kind of come together? Did you initially just start you know, feeling the waters and seeing who would be interested or what was the, the first steps there? We didn't want to make something that was kind of, authorized necessarily by rebellion who are 2080s publishers but we kind of wanted their cooperation so we sort of needed to reach out to them first to see whether we were going to have any difficulties there and then also landing pat mills was a big one for us as well because we right from the beginning we knew he would be the kind of spine of the film because he started it he was, you know, he's been there practically the entire time. He's still there. So we knew if we didn't get him, we didn't really have a film. So I, I, I'd say for me, those were like the two main things. And, you know, and we got those settled fairly quickly. We obviously assembled a, a crew together. We had um, my business partners, Nick and Jim, pretty quickly brought them on board as, you know, the, the project was obviously going to need some funding. And also Helen Milan joined the crew who is um you know she's huge um experience in uh, distribution film distribution and a massive 2000 ad fan and so sort of 
that was our motley crew, the five of us. And I think one of the first things we did was was like get an A list of who are the important key people we need to speak to. And like Sean says, Pat was pretty much first on the list. And and once he agreed, uh, yeah, we knew we had a film. Did you guys get pretty much everybody off of your A list? Uh, I would say we mostly did pretty well. There's a few we couldn't get for various reasons. You know, there's obviously one name that we keep being asked about. You know, I think we pretty much like spoke to like everyone we really wanted. And just some people just weren't up for doing this kind of thing. There are some people I think that have kind of left 2018 behind. Don't particularly want to talk about it anymore. And some people who are just very difficult to talk to full stop. But I think we got we got a lot. We got I mean we think we spoke to about forty people all in all, and I would say we got most of the people that we really wanted. When you guys were growing up, this was I take it a very important part of your life, two thousand AD comics. So can you kind of tell me where they sat in your life? And because for me, you know, obviously going to the comic book store in America, it was all about Marvel and DC and I was more of a Marvel guy. So two thousand AD was a very foreign experience for me when I first encountered it. I'm sure it was. <laughs> we all had comics as as little kids, which probably it's probably the same for Sean. You 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 get a different comic every week, you know, when you're when you're sort of six, seven, eight years old. Just anything off the newsstand, and 2000 AD would have been just something I grabbed, you know, one or two weeks. But then, I think you know, in my sort of early teens, I got into properly, you know, I I properly knuckled down and started collecting it and buying. You could buy the reprint old volumes and down on from the comic book stores in the West End and. This is like mid 80s for me when I sort of got serious about comics. And in a weird way, this is when this is when 2000 AD talent was being creamed off to head over to DC, you know, in the the sort of progenitor titles of of what became Vertigo. You know, we were really, really proud because these are the guys we were reading and looking at their art every week. And they were sort of slowly getting picked off and being really successful, you know, and and. In a, in a weird way, 2008 kind of got me into American comics as well, because that was, you know, I read Spider-Man and stuff as a little kid, but, you know, I, I was going to, you know, at 13, 14, going to the comic book store after school every night. And and this this was our experience of of that drift of talent, that brain drain of talent to the state. So, so you know, that's a, quite an important part of the story, which we tried to tell in the documentary. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, as a kid... I I remember like loving comics and loving superheroes and stuff and you know before you're really old enough to understand Marvel DC and whatever else but I was I was always a Marvel kid and uh, you know I loved Spider-Man and all this kind of thing I remember being bought 2000 AD as Paul said it was just like something random that your mum would grab you off the shelf sometimes but I remember the first issue I was ever bought which was the first issue uh, where the Apocalypse War started. And I just remember as a kid seeing the cover and thinking, this is not like anything else I've seen. This is a bit weird. And just and having that impression from a very early age that this was something a bit different. Slightly later on, I, I remember getting a, a finding a copy in a jumble sale, and it, it was an old, another older issue. It was one of the um, first Four Dark Judges stories, one of the, one of the, one of the episodes from that. And again, just like, this is not superheroes. This is, I don't know what this is, and I don't know what it's doing to my brain, but this is really cool. It had an early Nemesis story in it where Nemesis gets hung and then comes back from the dead. 
yeah, it was just all of a sudden, this is not Spider-Man. And I really think it just kind of made a very early mark on me. And I went back to it when I was slightly older and started buying it every week. But even as a kid, it's just like this random thing that was thrust in front of me. It was like, you could tell, you could tell that this was not superheroes. And this, you know, this was a bit different. I was, th- I was talking to someone recently and I was, we were talking about, you know, Spider-Man, especially around that time, sort of mid eighties and that, and that sort of, I think the American hero comics were, you, 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 it, it gave you exactly what you wanted. I think Spider-Man, those sort of titles kind of still do, you know, Silver Surfer, Batman, X-Men, whatever. You, there's something specific you want and they deliver it. And I think, you know, that sort of slightly unnerving, scary feeling when you read like indie comics or like stuff like Vertigo or this new stuff that's out, uh, uh, Image, they're doing it really well at the moment where you're reading it, but you're slightly unnerved all the time because it's brand new characters and anything can happen. You know, they could, any one of them could be taken away from you at any point. And 2000 AD always had that kind of hard, like edgy kind of feeling to it that that, that sort of anything could happen. That we were, I, I wasn't really getting that from any of the US comics at the time. The thing I think you guys really brought through in the documentary was just the whole idea of it. The comics line starting in that like golden era of punk when there was a lot of troubles going on in the UK and then really growing up during that Thatcherite era and just being like so in your face as far as like things aren't as good as they could be. And I really appreciate that you guys did that. Certainly for me, it was very important that we focus on the the politics and everything behind the comic just because at the time there wasn't in the mainstream there there weren't many comic books doing stuff like 2000 AD was and it was so influential for me in that I learned at a very early age that you could do genre stories but they could be actually about something underneath the genre trappings that you could actually have this subtext this political subtext or whatever, and and the story could be about something more than, you know, fights and guns and explosions and whatever else. And it taught me that at a really early age, and I just don't think any, anyone was really doing that in comics. And so I thought that was really important for us to deal with. You know, we were very clear that we didn't just want to do, you know, a fan documentary about, and, like, what's your favourite character and all this kind of thing. It's all sort of like, yeah, we know the characters and we know they're great, but this is actually seminal because it was, it was going deeper than that. And we just, you know, we thought that was really important to deal with. I love how the character of judge dread, who is such a prominent character in 2008 is just, he's such a troubling character. You know, he embraces that right wing. There are black and white criminals and regular people kind of thing. And it's just, he's not somebody that you should really look up to, but he's such a compelling character. It was confusing. I remember being a kid and just thinking, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, when even even though I'm avidly reading it, still being troubled by it, you know, 12, 13 years old, I didn't understand. I, I wish I could say that I understood all the layers of subversion that were being put into that character at the time, but it was only sort of years later when I kind of, you know, managed to unpick it all. But but yeah, I mean, it was probably at that, at that part time in my life, the first, my first experience of like the, an anti-hero that I can remember, you know, certainly in comics at least. Because like as a kid, you're responding to him as a hero, but I, you know, I just some, remember some of the early stuff, like there's, there's a bit in the judge child, judge child saga where um, 
where one of the other judges on the mission has a moustache and, and Dredd doesn't approve of judges having moustaches. And so he ultimately makes him do this thing that ends up with this judge dying. And the judge is like, it's because I haven't got a moustache, isn't it? And he's like, don't be stupid. You know, you're just the best man for the job. But <laughs> as a kid, you're reading it and you're going, no, it is because he's got a moustache. You're a <laughs> bastard. You know. Or how many Dredd stories ended with, like the one where he... he uh... There's the robots that have gone crazy, the house cleaning droids, and they're murdering their owners. And they track down. There's like 300 of them that they they, they can't get hold of the owners. And then and he rescues some guy just as the robot is about to sort of in, give him a lethal injection. He re- he saves his life, and in the very last panel, like books the guy, you know, sends him to prison for for you know. On the one hand, he's rescued him, but then instantly sends him to jail for to the cubes for having an unlicensed whatever you know sugar or or a gun or or whatever it is he's got in his house you know so so he's like the hero and there's always this kind of hateful acerbic sort of edge to him that that oh he's definitely uh you know open my world right up i was very glad that you guys talked about the two judge dread films and just comparing those and and talking to alex garland i was really glad to see him show up in the film as well it turns out we were really lucky to get Alex and, and he, he sort of said to us in our communications before the interview, you know, he said, I don't often get involved in these kind of things. Um, but, you know, because it's 2000 AD, I'm more than happy to speak to you guys because it is such a, you know, a seminal thing to me in my career. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was really fascinating getting, you know, really behind the scenes and that, you know, I, I, th- I think I've got a feeling Alex is. He doesn't. He, he doesn't feel that positive about dread. We talked about that during the interview, and he he sort of feels kind of really negative about about it. It's a shame because I think you know the legacy of what that film that they made is 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 good and solid and strong, and it's a it's a great film that people will you know find one. I think he's just upset that it wasn't perfect, that he didn't sort of get it perfectly. He felt guilty because, it, you know, ultimately it didn't do well enough to justify other films. And he yeah. felt as though he, you know, wrecked the franchise because Killed of that. The franchise, yeah. um, you know, but the thing is, it's sort of like that's beyond his control. He made a good movie. That's really all you can do. And the rest of it is in the lap of the gods. So, you know, I think he's a bit hard on himself there, you know, as opposed people, to the first people, one, of course. People will pick it up, though, in the future and look back at it and say, wow, this is great and brave and, and yeah. interesting. Yeah, you know? I don't think they'll say that about the fucking first one. And it's such a shame when you look at the first one. There is actually quite a lot that they get right. You know, the the background details of the world that they're in, the production design is actually production. fantastic. <laughs> they had the money to do, you know, Mega City One as it should be. Uh, they just got everything else wrong, and it, it's just kind of a, tr- a tragedy that someone was willing to spend the money on doing it, but they just wouldn't do it properly. Well, I think the problem with Garland's film is that he didn't have his outfits created by Gianni Versace. <laughs> <laughs> no massive gold cod piece. <laughs> the weird thing about the Judge Dread film, the Stallone one, and it seems like a small thing, is the taking the helmet off thing, right? It kind of seems like one of those things that you're saying, ah, oh, you know, it's a, it's a, you're a fan of the comic and you read it, you know, and, and just because you, you can't have a foot. People would sort of excuse that for years, saying, how are you going to have an actor take, you know, not take it? The problem with him taking his helmet off is that in the comic, he never takes his helmet off. He is the faceless, as you say, he's the hero, the villain, but he's ju- he's the law with no face. He has no face. 
Yeah, he's there's got, nothing. There's nothing not beyond back. the helmet. Yeah, there's nothing under there. He's it's what he represents. And you take the helmet off, you've torn the heart out of what the character is all about. One hundred percent, what that character is supposed to be about is gone in a in a a decision that some vacuous meeting of suits decide well we can't do it we'll forget that it's probably the first decision they made yeah we've got stallone we've got to show his face yeah Yeah, i thought that was one of the bravest things that carl urban has done is not show his face in a film Mm. it's true it's true brave very brave For, for an actor who you know by that point in his career he's got a few you know mega films under his belt hasn't he and 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 um he said that in the documentary you know he said he he just genuinely wanted to represent what the character was about as best he could said that in a documentary i was also really glad that you guys talked about the whole hardware thing because i Uh, for some reason never really made that connection before but it always felt like it was there so the thing is is like that though the story that hardware lifted from is 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 a relatively obscure story so i think a lot of people just haven't read it and don't know what happened um, and it was, you know, a, a, I think most people in the in the UK are aware of that, but I think a lot of people in the US don't necessarily know the story behind that, you know. And it's 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 one of those things. It's kind of like I like hardware as a movie. I, I think it's a fun movie. So it's not a, it's not a dig per se at hardware. It's just the fact that like, come on guys, you rip this off. If you read that story and you look at hardware, it's like there is no doubt that it ripped it off. And it's just kind of like, well, you know, I like plenty of movies that aren't exactly original. Um, it was just a case of they got caught with their hands in the till and had to admit it. Um, but you know, I'm not, uh, it's, it's not having a go at hardware. I, I think it's a good movie and, um, it's just, uh, acknowledge where you came from. Yeah, not, not at all. Hardware is a great movie. And, and the thing was, it's just, the same goes for Robocop. We knew about those things as they were happening. Like the hardware story to, to guys like us who were going in and trying to find out as much about the writers and artists and reading interviews and, and, and stuff at the time, you know, the hardware story is a, is a, is a thing we've known about for years and years. Same, same with, you know, Robocop looking at, looking at dread. And so, you know, this is the story I think that Sean and I and, and, and the others are, we've been waiting to tell this for years and say, look, everybody, look at Robocop, look, look where they got it from. Look at hardware, look where it came from, you know, follow the breadcrumbs, know your source stuff, you know, it's one of the, you know, one of those things that we just wanted to tell for, for years. <laughs> you know, and there are certainly some other ones as well that we actually ended up having to take out because of legal reasons. But yeah. uh, there, there were, there were a few others along the way where people were like, look, that film is a massive ripoff of this, you know, and, but uh, the lawyers said we couldn't have all of those in the film. So some of them went, <laughs> well, there are no lawyers on this call. So if you want to <laughs> share some of those, well, there's loads. Uh, where, there were things where some of the interviewees would say something along the lines of, you know, someone, point, someone pointed out the soldier was uh, hugely indebted to Rogue Trooper, shall we yeah. say. They said they said it. They said, he said it's um, Rogue Trooper with the um, identification numbers filed off. And 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 when when you have like the trouble with legal is if somebody it might well be the case, but if somebody says, well. I think that this, then that's just one person's opinion and you can't sort of go around accusing directors of plagiarism, I guess, without. <laughs> but there's, you know, what, 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 what were some of the others? People just say, like, they would Blood name rain. drop things Blood, like Mad Max. Blood rain. And Blood rain and Durham Red. Durham Red, Blood Rain, quite a lot, quite a few other things. And, and these are things that we felt, I felt the presence of 2000 AD in 
so much stuff over the years and, and known it to be the source material. This was one of our missions to go and speak to these people and to, ha- to have someone like Alex Garland say, 2000 AD influenced everything I've ever written yeah. <laughs> you know, on camera to us. We were like, ah, you know. It, it happens a lot. It's like, you know, because I think for the, you know, um, especially in the US, 2000 AD is this cult thing. It's probably perceived as quite small and obscure and all this kind of thing. And so some people feel like they can lift from it just in the same way that you see bigger films that are clearly ripping off indie films that, you know, maybe haven't had as wide distribution or anything like that. Um, and it, you know, it goes on all the time and it's just, uh, it's, we just wanted to give 2000 AD its due and sort of say, look, a lot of people have been ripping this off for a long time now, but this is where this stuff comes from. You mentioned it a little bit ago, but the whole idea of these guys being you know pulled away from 2000 AD and just infiltrating DC and Vertigo and everything and just being able to disseminate the, the kind of 2000 AD feel throughout the rest of the comics world was just that was such a fascinating part of the story yeah I mean like I I, I liken it to um, like the Roger Corman in the like the 60s where you had all these directors who went on to be who went on to transform mainstream Hollywood all got their apprenticeship working for Corman doing this like doing these little low budget genre movies but that's where they learned their trade, and then they moved up a, a rung on the ladder and started to transform the industry at large. And 2000 AD was exactly the same thing. These guys started out doing this genre stuff for 2000 AD, and they could kind of smuggle in what they wanted to do. And then they went bigger, and they took what they'd learned at 2000 AD and transformed the comics industry. You know, And Roger Corman always gets credit for that, but 2000 AD doesn't always get credit for that. And so that, again, was like really important that we made people understand this is where these guys came from. This is where they learned their trade. It's why, it's why it was really important to us to come over and speak to Karen Berger. You know, I mean, we, we, we when... Like I said, we we got a list together of the important players at 2000 AD, and that just didn't just include, you know, the creators themselves or and, and editors. You know, we felt that if we were very lucky that Karen was happy to talk to us, and she said, and she emailed us and said, "Look, again, it's the same sort of thing as with Alex Garland." She said, "I'm happy to talk to you because it's true there would be no Vertigo without 2000 AD." And we were we were like, "Oh man, if you could say that to us on on camera, that'd be amazing." Because this is what we believe to be the case, and you know, she was happily, you know, that is the truth of the situation. Mike, Mike, I'm assuming you're a similar generation to us, and you know, how how how, how did you guys? How did you feel about Vertigo when it was coming out? Were you following those books, Sandman? And I was more just kind of aware that things were changing during that time. Just the whole, you know, the Watchmen and the Dark Knight and these things. And it just felt like there was a, you know, a, a rising tide happening at that point. And I was a little too young to appreciate some of that stuff. But then years hence, I've gone back and it's like, wow, yeah, this was a pretty major change to the to the industry and just to the attitudes this is as you say and we witnessed the same thing happening from over here you know we were like ah go on al go on brian go on dave go on grant you know i mean it really genuinely that's what we used to go and see you know grant morrison's now gonna write doom patrol or animal man you know i was buying animal man and just reading this stuff and just thinking ah this is brilliant it's brilliant it reads like a 2000 ad strip and you're like ah go on grant (laughs) it must have been something for you guys to kind of meet uh, all these people that you had read for all these years and i assume never had the chance to talk to before this god yeah no absolutely i mean um 
again for me uh pat mills was was a huge sort of early figure for me and and kind of influence uh, i was a massive fan of alan moore stuff and he was kind of seminal for me as a kid but i think even before that i was reading pat mills and kind of going understanding that comics could do more than perhaps sometimes they were allowed to um you're reading pat stuff which is so obviously so so angry and political and and there's just so much going on in it and it's not playing safe and it's not playing by the rules and it kind of made made a very strong impression on me early on so like meeting pat and and speaking to him and someone who's been around for so long and is still so passionate you know he's not burnt out he hasn't given up he's he's not putting his feet up and having a cup of tea he's still fucking angry and he still wants comics to be the best they can be and you know that was that was massive for me meeting him he's he's maybe more passionate about it now surely what do you think yeah i mean after, whole 30, career after, to look after 30 40 years of being wow. fucked around <laughs> yeah you could probably say he's fairly passionate these days yeah he's also quite a legendary character as well you know and and um Let's say, let's say a few people had some sort of words of advice for us before we met him, and it was just amazing. When we went to his house, it was a kind of it was we were quite a little bit apprehensive, but he was so like he was welcoming and generous, and he really appreciated what we were trying to do, tell the 2000 AD story. And what was what was really cool was that he he sort of agreed, and he was sort of so generous and saying this needs to be told this story, and I'm happy to tell you at length and um you know it's it's true that we we spent an, a whole day at his house and and i think it was like 11 or 12 hours we were at his house you know and all, all chopped down his 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 entire interview with all the chaff cut out was like ran at about five and a half hours long <laughs> yeah he seems like such the raconteur he's just he was fascinating to listen to and he provides such a you you said the word spine before and he definitely is that spine for the documentary yeah, you know, it it's was just, he, 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 he said himself, you know, we, we, there was one point, I think we'd been there a few hours already and we were kind of apologizing and we had a, we knew we had quite a way to go. And I, you know, I was sort of like, Pat, you know, we understand that we're in your home, we're imposing and all this sort of thing. So uh, if you feel like you want to stop at any point, if you feel like you want us to leave, just say, and he was like, no, 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 this is long overdue. It needs to be said, you know. <laughs> and you know he carried on until you know but, but by the end of the day he was cracking open the red wine and, and passing around drinks and all this kind of thing <laughs> he was he was quite happy to get up on his soapbox and, and and tell the whole story well back 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 to what you were saying mike you you're right it was it was quite a big deal actually for us to meet some of these guys and an honor you know and to have them say stuff like that to us is is sort of congratulating us in a way but saying, you know, it's good. It's a good thing you're doing, and 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 well done. And 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 most everybody who took part in the documentary, we're, we're all kind of on on the, you know, like I said about Alex Garland, they were saying, you know, because of our passion for 2000 AD, we're ha we're happy to be involved. You know, I'd say the same thing certainly about um, David Bishop, who was, you know, the editor during some of the some of the tough times in the 90s. He was so candid and so happy to talk about those things. We were really, really lucky, I think. But it was all because, you know, he shares, you know, he shares our passion and enthusiasm for the comic. And again, he wanted those the, like those stories to be told as well. We we're really lucky, man. Yeah, I love that you guys get into the business angle of things as far as like the whole, you know, reprinting of comics and and not giving anybody credit or not giving them payment and then the the credits um 
inside of the comic and, and just kind of letting people know that these artists and writers have names. And it just it was so fascinating to hear that and some of the infighting that would then go on because of that. It was just great. This, <laughs> even with even if these weren't like these seminal characters, just to hear these stories about how this business was being run was terrific. One thing we were very clear on as well is that we didn't want to make a puff piece. I mean, we were we, we were all, we were all huge fans of the comic, but at the same time, we knew that there was a dark side to some of the history, that there were some thorny issues. And we didn't want to shy away from that because we thought that's not what 2000 AD is about. You know, it's, the comic itself is spiky and confrontational and doesn't play it safe. And so we didn't want to do that as a documentary. It would be like it would just be untrue to the spirit of 2000 AD. So... And it was also important to, to us to make something that was interesting to people who are not necessarily fans of the comic or even not necessarily comic fans, full stop. Some of those stories really chime with me. I think if you work in any sort of kind of creative type industry, some of those comics really struck, some of the stories really struck a chord with me. And, and I, I've certainly, I had a friend of mine who watched it who's who doesn't really know the comic very well, but he's he's a journalist and he's worked in the sort of magazine industry for years and he was just kind of like, oh, my God, you know, I just recognize so much of that stuff from my experiences. And, you know, and as as did I, it's just like there are certain stories in there that chime with me having worked in the film business, you know, and it's just it has a certain universality to it in, in terms of like how creative people are treated. And that was, you know, certainly something that, that I felt very strongly about. Uh, a lot of a lot of good feedback, hasn't it? Hasn't it shown come back from, like you say, people that haven't known what 2000 ad was before yeah but yeah i mean it's the story of you know the 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 sales people and the and the managers and the and the faceless sort of suits and the mistreatment of and misunderstanding of of creators and creative people i mean this is it like you say a universal story The, the 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 way some of that artwork was treated and there's i mean that is like it's like a horror film to me some of the stuff that that, that gibbons and Kevin and it O'Neill wasn't and it, and it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things right. and if you look at it now and obviously like comic book artwork is at a premium now and you know sells for thousands in some instances and yet only like 30 odd years ago they were wiping their feet on it you know it's just like it's absolutely crazy those stories i mean it's the story of comics isn't it the mistreat. Look at you know, going back to Siegel and Schuster and and Bill Finger and guys like that. You you it is it is this is how comics were run. It was a it was a factory. Yeah, for a long time, you know. And now now that they're so much a part of the mainstream, and you know, now that the you know film business Hollywood is pretty much based on comic books. You know, it's. I think it's important to kind of acknowledge the sort of very shabby history that comics have in a lot of ways. It's like you have to know where this stuff comes from. You have to be aware of it, and and to to celebrate the unorthodox nature of the way that Kevin O'Neill, like, yeah, you know, slipped in those credit cards. You know, he, he did it. They lied. They just they just lied to the management and said, "Oh, don't you know? It's just something we're trying out or whatever." But he knew what he was doing, and he was, you know, what what, what just to explain what he was doing was was doing a little sort of uh, a, a, what he called a credit card, which was had the writer and the artist and the letterer's name on it, and nobody. This is something we I I personally learned while we were making this documentary. I didn't know two thousand AD was the first time in British comics that had ever been done. You know, I think Marvel Marvel were okay at that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that that obviously started earlier in the in the US. Yeah, 
people were credited earlier, but in British comics, people were still not credited even by that point in the 70s, you know. There's still so much infighting now as far as uh, who really created this character, you know, and, and I mean, even just the other day, it was like, you know, people decrying Stan Lee, you know, oh, Jack Kirby did all this yeah. stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, that's going to be the endless debate <laughs> for all time. Yeah. Yeah. I was so happy to see Scott Ian show up. I, I just love that guy. <laughs> And he's just such a an amazing, successful nerd. You know, he just yeah. like he, he's terrific. I I love listening to him and his passion about things is just boundless. Yeah, I was really happy we managed to get him. It was just one of the we we wanted to speak to people who worked in other fields, who were fans of the comic, who would talk about the influence it had on them and all this kind of thing. And you know, obviously. Anthrax did the "I Am the Law" single, which uh, which I remember being a. It was actually a you know a, a small hit in the UK. Um, I think partly because of the dread angle. And whilst I would never sit here now and say it's a particularly good song, it was a massive thing at the time. It was like, wow, you know, Anthrax charted with a song about Judge Dread. It's a great um, song. What are you doing about? <laughs> <laughs> so he was he was definitely on our list, and like, luckily, I've uh, the same guy I was talking about earlier, my journalist friend. He knows Scotty in fairly well and uh, has interviewed him a few times over the years. And then it turned out he was doing a spoken word tour of the UK. So I was like, look, can you drop him an email and just sort of say we're doing this and would he talk to us? And again, he was really happy to talk to us. He was, you know, and he's been really supportive of the documentary. And all these people were just kind of like, yeah, I'd love to talk about 2000 AD, you know. We've spoke to Jeff Barrow as well in a similar way. He's a guy, you know, it's interesting to speak to these guys and say, how, how can a comic influence music? Sort of, you know, and and obviously with with Scott Ian, it was uh, it was the whole it was the dread thing, and he wrote a song about dread. But but it was nice to speak to Jeff Barrow from Portishead, and he was um he was just sort of saying what he took from 2000 AD was that sort of fuck you attitude, you know, which he's put into all everything that he creates. You know what I mean? So so that side of things was was cool to get from someone like him as well. I really have to applaud the music that's in the film. Can you tell me about the score? Yeah, so um, the score is by uh, my good friend Justin Greaves, who's in a UK band uh, called Cripple Black Phoenix, who, um, who, well, me and Paul were both fans of. Who deserve uh, to be epically successful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they do pretty well over here in Europe. I'm sure they're sort of pretty much unknown in the US. But I think it was actually like, I think, Paul, you introduced me to them in the first place, just like in terms of the music. And then I? <laughs> I think I think it was you. Yeah, I think you said, check this band out. It was like fairly early on. They'd only done a couple of albums at that point. Um, and then I made a film a few years back called Devil's Business, which is like an indie horror movie. And I was listening to Justin's band a lot while I was making that movie. And in the end, I was like, and there was like one song I wanted to use on the for the for the closing credits, and it was like, all right, fuck it, I'm just going to get in touch with this guy and and sort of see if we can license this song somehow. So emailed him and sort of explained what the deal was, and and he was kind of like, yeah, we're playing a gig in London in a couple of weeks, come down and have a chat. And so I went down there um, and and spoke to him, and he was like, yeah, you can use the song, but wouldn't you rather I wrote the score for the movie? Yeah. So we did that together and that turned out really well. And so it was kind of a no brainer on this to bring him on. And like, you know, Paul turned around to me fairly early on and said, do you think Justin will do it? And I'm like, I'm sure he will. Um, we, knew, we knew he was into 2008. Yeah. Uh, Cripple Black Phoenix had done like secret gigs under the name ABC Warriors. 
you know and it's just I, I i have a really good working relationship with him at this point and so when i when i sort of went to him and mentioned it he was like fuck yeah i'd be really offended if you didn't ask me you know <laughs> and we basically just said to him look we want a mixture of sort of punk and kind of 70s electronica you know just to get give that feel and he just nailed it you know and it was actually like well i think one of the most fun things we did on on the film was go into the studio with him in a couple of days for a couple oh, of days just, he was kind of laying everything down and we were just kind of there sort of in the background as as, as he was coming up with a lot of this stuff he de- he demoed a couple of tracks didn't he that were yeah he was like how do you like these for the we knew we knew we needed just like a kick-ass punk track for the theme yeah, you know the opening credits sequence, and then sort of the the chapters, which we was by that point no, we were getting to know what sort of chapters, yeah, you know what sort of subjects we were going to be talking about, and yeah, he so he demoed a few tracks, and then we went in for like two two very very long days in the studio. <laughs> there were just it's, I I mean I was we we were in our element, Shawnee. Yeah, it was just a, an amazing weekend, and yeah. uh, the guys at the at the studio were fantastic and. You know, he's a, Justin's a multi instrumentalist, so he was just like he'd play a riff, hop in the other room, get on the drums, do some mad thrash drumming, <laughs> get back in the room, lay the bass down, and we're just seeing all this stuff just created out of thin air and pa- and passion. He was just like, oh, this is this is for ABC Warriors, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, that was an amazing experience. Yeah, that opening theme just you know kicks it off so well and just grabs you and it's just like you're gonna watch this movie, nice. goddammit. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks for um, paying attention. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're hoping to get the score released later this year. So uh, so yeah, everyone, uh, anyone, and a lot of, a lot of people have really responded to the music. So um, yeah. hopefully, Justin will get his due further down the road. Good. You just answered my next question. Ah, good. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, we are we are we are currently talking to uh, a very a very uh, renowned uh, company who do a lot of vinyl scores uh, who uh, who are definitely interested in doing it. So uh, so fingers crossed that will all work out. And uh, yeah, later this year that should be out. Yeah, and I really this isn't just me kind of kissing up, but I have to say that the editing in the film, I mean, you talked about a five and a half hour interview with Pat Mills and mm-hmm. being able to cut that down, being able to cut down all these interviews and making this whole story just chug along so well and just really keep me captivated for the entire running time and not make me feel like I'm missing anything because that's always the problem with documentaries of this nature is like well what about this thing what about that thing mm. you guys covered everything and you just kept the momentum the whole time it was oh, great it's, it's nice of you to say mike it's, it was it was it was a lot of work but it was all it was all good fun you know i gotta say that it, as, yeah. as, as tough as it was at any point this this has just been such an enjoyable experience because it's something you know that we really really care about so and and i'm glad that you say that you felt nothing was left out believe me people have complained i mean there is stuff there is obviously (laughs) stuff missing but uh but we just you know we wanted to um sort of get a balance between telling the kind of obviously the sort of abc historical kind of account but getting into some of these issues along the way and then also giving acknowledgement to some of the biggest characters you know, and it's a, it was a lot to juggle, I and mean, we worked really hard on the structure. First assembly of it I watched, which was like the good stuff, you know, was eight, nine hours long, I think. 
And so we, you know, we had to get that down to sort of an hour and a half or so. So yeah, it was it was tricky. But sometimes you just had to roll your sleeves up and go, nope, that's going. No tears, yeah. just chuck it out the window. You know, whole sections, whole subjects that we talked about. One of the bits that I was a little bit, I was a little bit sad, sad to lose. Mike was a, was quite an interesting discussion that we we asked everybody who it was relevant to to sort of. You know, we touch on uh, Neil Gaiman sort of does that bit saying about um, the difference between sort of dread as an icon or, or let's say Batman or Superman as an icon. And that's and that's something which we we expanded on quite a lot with everybody. And it and it got into this really interesting discussion about um, basically British comic audiences and American comic audiences. And why are they different and why does a British audience lap up something like 2000 AD whereas it's got quite a sort of niche audience in the states you know and and I think it's fair to say that dread's been perhaps a little bit misunderstood over the years and and stuff like that and I mean it got into history politics you know royalty all sorts of interesting discussions about you know that that the, the the differences between the two comic markets and the audiences and entertainment in general and and uh, yeah I was kind of I'd like to, I'd like to get that out there one day maybe. <laughs> it's not on the UK DVD where there is a possibility slightly further down the road of there being a Blu-ray with extra stuff on it which again is sort of a conversation we're having at the moment. Fingers crossed there are certain people keen to do it so if we can work that out then there will be a special edition with with a lot of extra stuff on it which would be nice. Yeah, that would be fantastic because that is one of those things that I find very fascinating is that difference between you know our, our two cultures started off obviously we sprang from you guys started off so similarly and then just the way that we've diverged over the years has just been fascinating mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's true it's true but i mean you know i mean a lot of people would start off on the very surface and say the american audience seemed to miss the point of judge dread and read it as a as a kick-ass you know future cop story and we were kind of like, well, I think that's a bit unfair because Dredd himself had been inspired by Dirty Harry and, you know, other American movies from the, you know, American cinema was feeding in as an influence to, to Pat Mills and Wagner and, and, and the artists in those early days as much as anything else. So it was kind of, well, let's say it was a really interesting conversation. Some people have accused you of, you know, hey, you missed this, you missed this other thing. Of course, of course, there's no Alan Moore in this film, and I would have been shocked if there had been Alan Moore in this film. We did try, we did try. I'm sure you did. (laughs) But I know he's a little difficult to work with sometimes. Well, you know, see, the thing is, part of the problem with, with Alan Moore is that it's how you even approach him in the first place, because uh, obviously he's uh, burnt a few bridges over the years. So there are a lot of people that used to speak to him and don't speak to him anymore. And what you find is that the people who are still speaking to him won't necessarily introduce you to him because they don't want to upset him. So we were certainly warned about that early on as well. In the end, I did. I was finally introduced to someone who uh, who agreed to um, have a word with him for us. Basically, the word came back very quickly that he doesn't want to talk about the past anymore and all this kind of thing, which we expected. It's fine. Um, and then we ended up speaking to his daughter randomly. And, uh, you know, when when we went interview to interview Leah, 
I didn't even want to ask her about her dad because that wasn't the only reason we were interviewing her. We were interviewing her as sort of part of the newer generation of 2080 writers as a woman, because obviously we get into those kind of issues. And I didn't even want to like bring her dad up. I didn't want her to feel like we were only there because her dad was Alan Moore. But she started speaking about him like from the off, just it was obviously so natural to her to kind of talk about her dad that we ended up getting some really good stuff from her. And and so it felt to me, and obviously like Neil Gaiman had a lot to say about him as well. So it, it felt to me like we didn't really miss him. He's he's acknowledged, but it doesn't really suffer for him not being in it. And then you know, uh, randomly, I ended up interviewing him for something else not long after we finished the documentary. And he was great. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, he was funny. He was nice. He was really interesting. But he just won't talk about the past anymore. He's sick of talking about it. And Geordie, do you remember we were saying to you, just at the end of the interview, just get your iPhone out and just say... And just, just slip in a you, question. Yeah, just say, <laughs> tell us about Halo Jones for five minutes. Go, go. <laughs> you know, I think he sort of famously, well, you know, he had that huge row with Grant Morrison, didn't he, in public a couple of years ago. And during that, he sort of said, I am f- officially withdrawing from talking about anything other than w- w- my current project. So... We kind of knew that was the case, and right at the beginning, we sort of said, "Look, Alan Moore's a long shot, but right. but Pat Mills is our number one guy." And in terms of the sort of names that 2000 AD has produced, there's there's three three big other guys really, which is Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and and Alan Moore. And I, we you know we said, "Look, if we could get two out of three of those guys, then then we're golden," you know. And and uh, luckily, Grant and Neil both you know, agreed to interviews, which is great. Yeah. And I could listen to those guys talk all day long. They yeah, carry yeah. such a weight, don't they? You know, you know, with, with the careers that they've had, when they speak, you, you, you want to listen to what those guys are saying, right? Well, yeah, just to hear Gaiman talk about story structure and storytelling and all that. It's just, he's fascinating. I was quite surprised, you know, his nature. He was really, again, really candid about how it all ended, his relationship with 2000 AD, about how he felt. That he, I mean, obviously, he's well known for being a champion of creators' rights, so, you know, that whole side of it was, was brilliant, but also telling us about, you know, talking to us about how he felt, he like being friends with Alan Moore and how he felt about, you know, Alan Moore not finishing Halo Jones and stuff like that, you know, really, really fascinating guy. Same, same with Grant Morrison, you know, again, he had us into his home, for a good few hours chatting more than happy to talk about all that old stuff. And, and again, he was another one. He was like, you know, 2018 is so important that it's important that, that, that we do take part. Tell me where the film is at presently. You know, it, it seems like, has it had its festival run? Has it, uh, you talked about it possibly having a theatrical run or, or how is that? What, what's going on with the movie itself? It, uh, we've, we've done the festival run. It was, that was, that was a little while ago. Now we sort of, yeah, we did a fair few festivals with it. It's, it's been released in the UK. It's on. Pre- you know, it premiered at Fantastic Fest. It did premiere at Fantastic and Fest. And MondoCon yeah. in, uh, a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. An early cut of it, actually, I should say. Yeah, we did, <laughs> we, we tweaked it slightly after that. But it, yeah, and it's been released in the UK and in Australia, um, on DVD and, and digital and everything. We have 
done a deal for a digital release in the US. I, we don't have any details of it yet, but essentially the deal's been done. So it will be coming out via digital platforms in the US, although I can't say exactly when yet. But that is, that's a done deal. So it will be coming out digitally, and we're working on a physical release as well. So it is coming out at your side of the pond. I just can't say exactly when right now. But, uh, yeah, for anyone who doesn't want to import the UK DVD uh, or wants to possibly wait for a special edition, uh, then, yeah, that should, in theory, be coming. I want to ask you this kind of off the record. Do you want me to hold off on releasing this episode until it is available digitally or or via another release so that people can get their hands on a little bit easier here in the States? Um, I mean, that might be a good idea. If that doesn't cause you too many hassles, then it might be an idea to maybe delay it a little while. Okay. Yeah. You know, anything I can do to help, you know, kind of spread the word about this is, yeah, well, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece and I want more people to be able to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Very Very kind. Thank you. Well, I want to ask you guys what you're both working on these days. I am currently part of the reason why scheduling this has been so tricky uh, is that I'm rehearsing a play at the moment. I'm doing a um, multi-author horror anthology play uh, with a bunch of, um, well, I say UK authors, but a couple of them are actually American. But uh, people like Kim Newman and a bunch of other horror authors. Uh, we did one a few years ago, and we're, we're doing another one that goes on in a week, actually. Um, and it's very much in the kind of amicus tradition. So, you know, it's like five or six stories and a wraparound story uh, called The Ghost Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. So, yeah, I'm sort of in the middle of putting that together right at this moment in time. Um and and I've been doing like some other script writing jobs. Um, I really want to try and direct something myself again, you know, in the not too distant future. But um, Paul and and I and the rest of the guys are actually talking about doing something next as well. Um, now that I've kind of um, conned them into um, joining me <laughs> in the film industry, you know. <laughs> They've, uh, they've like weirdly they've they've been bitten by the bug and they want to do more and lose more money. So I'm I'm only too happy to let them do this. We've dipped our toe in the in the water and it's just been you know the whole festival circuit has been great fun. You know, speaking to guys like you, Mike, and and doing these bits and bobs is is, is all cool. Some of the stuff behind the scenes of in the industry is a fucking nightmare. I'll tell you that. But you know everything, everything else, but making the film and and talking about the film, all the other shit you have to deal with is a bit of a pain. But you know we've kind of learned a lot. And yeah, like I say, our um, Stanton and Deviant and Sean, we're talking, you know, with Sean yeah. about hopefully hopefully getting something off the ground later this year. Yeah, I think the the idea is that we might we'll that we might do a feature together. So that so we're we're kicking around some ideas at the moment, and then I might go away and write something that we can then make as a as a feature. I don't think we're in any hurry to do another documentary, but uh, I think doing a, doing a feature next might be fun. So where can folks go to find out more about Future Shock? The old social media channels. It's Future Shock Doc on Facebook and Twitter. So, I, I, I mean, we just post any news or anything interesting that's happening. I mean, obviously, we're sharing news about the comic industry in 2000 AD, especially uh, at the moment. But, yeah, any any anything, any new details about the U.S. release, et cetera, will, will be on there. So that would be great. And uh, our site is uh, futureshock2000ad.com. 
but nobody ever looks at that. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter. That's, Twitter's the best place because it's 24-7, right? Guys, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure. Thank, thank you for having us. What's up, Earthlets? We are back, and we are talking about Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD. And this documentary, it's on IMDb. It's credited as being out in 2014. And I think this is just one of those movies that has had a long road to hoe when it comes to coming to uh, theaters near us or wherever you get your movies these days, uh, streaming or DVDs, physical media. I know physical media. You're still a physical media guy. Look who you're talking to. I know. You're surrounded by all your VHS tapes. I'm not sure Future Shock is coming out on VHS, though. I'm sorry. You know what? It probably should, because stylistically it would work. They should also put that uh, 10-year anniversary special that was shot on VHS out on VHS, too. That was a lovely little throwback. Thank you for turning me on to that. I'll I'll post that up. Uh, Hopefully it'll stick around on YouTube, and I'll post it up over at the website, projection-boot.com, so folks can see kind of a... Almost an early draft of Future Shock. It's it's uh, got it's a nice little time capsule. I mean, and not only of the people and the stories, but just the video technology itself. Yeah, before the show, Mike was commenting on the uh, video edits in it, the obvious like star wipe type things. It's it, it, it's very quaint for 1987. Yeah, and seeing like that Chiron at the end and everything of you know this has been at yeah that was good. The Future Shock documentary. I, I liked it overall. I had a few nitpicks. Now, I, I won't say it had an agenda, because this is not like Electric Boogaloo, where it was a hit piece, or the Go-Go Boys, where it was a love letter or something. This was a very honest documentary. It talked about all the great things 2000 AD did, and all of the stupid decisions that they made, mostly in the 1990s. So it had the good and the bad. So I credit the producers and the director for not shying away from the negative aspects. At the same time, and I know they can't control what the participants are saying, but the participants really seem to oversell 2008's importance to a degree to the point where it almost become it, it almost became bragging, and I don't think I don't think bragging that was deserved because the participants in the documentary They make 2000 AD out to be such a game changer that it literally changed American comics. And it did to a degree. But there's one point where they're talking about how crappy American comics are. American superheroes are so boring and Batman and Spider-Man are so this and this and this. And then I'm like, you realize that almost every one of the writers who said that in this documentary would go on to write X-Men and Spider-Man and Batman and stuff. And their stories were kind of mundane. So this whole American comics suck, British comics rule kind of attitude, I found honestly irritating. I I kind of agreed with them in a lot of ways. And I also have to think, 
they started in 2080 in what, 1977? The same year Heavy Metal started, yeah. So they have had a long time to think about this and want to talk about this. And yes, there was like the, the earlier documentary and people have been appreciating it in smaller form, but this is, was really their chance to kind of stand up on the bully pulpit and be like, Hey, listen to us. We did this stuff and you guys have to appreciate it. And plus it would have been kind of boring had they been a little bit more um, humble about things. So I can kind of understand as far as where they're coming from. And I can definitely see too. Yes. A lot of people moved on and ended up working for American comics and it's kind of the ones that they were decrying, but then a lot of them came over and just really changed the industry. I mean, we talked about Alan Moore before. I mean, looking at you know his Batman stories, his Superman stories, his Green Lantern stories. I mean, it's just like, yes, he worked for these things, which could have been wrote in the n- normal workaday comic stuff, but he took all of those and just elevated them. It was just like, he did two things, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, and then for the man who has everything. So I was trying to think of whatever happened to the man who has everything. <laughs> So that's the cross-pollination of those two stories. And those two are, both of them, are terrific. I got to say Watchmen is probably Alan Moore's best, but his best superhero stuff, I actually would go with, he had a two-issue backup Green Arrow story in, I think it was a Batman comic, called uh, The Night Olympics, where where Green Arrow thinks he accidentally kills a, a little kid. And those were, even though they were only backups, it's maybe 16 pages total. I thought that was a fantastically adult way to to deal with an urban superhero kind of story. So even more than Watchmen, I think Night Olympics is Alan Moore's best superhero work. And that's probably one of his really obscure ones that people don't know. Because who the hell remembers eight-page backup stories in Batman from the early 80s, you know? Yeah, I'm not even sure if that's collected in that uh, compilation that they put out a few years ago of his DC stories. Uh, Alan Moore is a great writer when he's on. When, you know, when he's off, I mean, like his run on Supreme, I get he was trying to do Superman arguably realistically for Image, but man, I'd re- I didn't see Alan Moore in that. But, you know, you also have ones like Grant Morrison. The weird thing about like, Grant, Grant Morrison coming over from 2000 AD is – I thought his 2000 AD stuff was very stark and very unique. And then when he came over and did his superhero stuff on X-Men and all that, I was like, okay, so it's an X-Men story. I don't know. When he came over and worked for Marvel, Grant Morrison seemed to have lost his edge, or they took his edge. Going back to the documentary, the whole idea of those credit cards and showing who's writing these stories and who's penciling these and who's doing the lettering and everything, you know, giving the credit to the writers. I know that Marvel had credits at the beginning of every single uh, issue and stuff, and there were some people that would follow the writers. For me, I was just completely oblivious to, to stuff, but every once in a while I'd be like, wow, that was a really good story. But for the most part, it felt like. Marvel kind of, you know, they, there were runs of, of writers where it was just like, it felt very bland. So, you know, it, it felt like the, depending on what title you were reading, it, it felt like you could get better writing from an X-Men than you could necessarily from, you know, a power pack or those kind of things. Exactly. But you also have this weird thing. Now, 2000 AD had this weird thing when it came to the writing. This is something the writers always hated. But 
the issues being a, being various serials and being an anthology book, you would have you would have a very uneven quality to it intentionally so. Because they knew people are not in the early days, they're not going to get into Judge Dredd with you know deep subtext and the fact that it's really an overt satire of not just American culture as seen through the eyes of of the Brits, but also of like the dirty hairy type characters that were emerging at the time. But they knew people were not going to see that, so they had to pander. So each issue, you'd have five different stories. You'd have maybe. Two that were like a Halo Jones or a Judge Dredd, and then you'd have garbage like Mach 1, which was a straight-up $6 million man ripoff that was all about violence. They knew kids were going to be buying the story for the pandering stupidity stories, and then they would also get to absorb the deeper stories. So in a way, the book was intentionally uneven, which is just bizarre to think about in today's terms, isn't it? Yeah, well, especially when you can laser in on just the stuff that you like now you know it's that whole idea of you know if you like true crime stuff there's a whole channel dedicated to that if you like this particular genre of movies or books or anything like that you get that and you can just you know feast on that or gorge on that for as long as you want and so the whole idea of like uh, uh, having all these different things available to you, even just in one book, it's just like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, all right. But I could see where that would get a little annoying at times, too. Both for the reader and for the writer. Because if, if you were an, a, an older reader and you were buying – like when I was buying 2000 AD, you know, 450 an issue or so, I was buying it essentially for Judge Dredd. I also liked Rogue Trooper and Strontium Dog and stuff like that. But then – there were these stories that were just – they were just pandering, and it just seemed like they were reveling in violence for the sake of violence. And I was like, why is this in this same magazine? That's the same thing that happened to heavy metal around the same time, the pandering. You'd have – it's just like, like an anthology movie. Don't you hate it, Mike, when you watch an anthology movie and there's one really <laughs> strong segment and two or three pieces of crap, and you wonder how these went together? That's how. You use the crap. To get people to look at the good. Yeah, and that's generally why I don't go for too many anthology movies. It's so rare that you get one where everything is almost the same level. I would say Michael Dotry's Trick or Treat is one of the best in that regard. Yeah, I still haven't seen that one. I would say probably Creepshow for me is one of those. We did a whole radio drum on that. Yeah, like, you know, it, 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 like Creepshow 2, The Raft is the only good one. But you've also got the other two, and you're like, eh, they're all right. I don't know. This hair's going to get me paid and laid. Yeah, white guy playing an Indian. You know, 2000 AD, even today, it's a very uneven book because of that. And to a degree, that's a good thing still, but also it gives you a variety of genres. Like 2000 AD, you pick up a new issue, you might have, you know, you're obviously going to have a Judge Dredd story. He's been in every issue since issue two. So you're going to have a Judge Dredd story, which is, you know, post apocalyptic, kind of dystopian future. Then you might have one that's all about dinosaurs. Then you might have one that's in a fantasy setting. And then you've got the kind of crossover ones, fantasy science fiction, like Nemesis the Warlock. So if you're into fantasy, there's something for you. You're into sci-fi. There's something for you. You're into you're into dinosaurs and whatnot. There's something for you. So as long as you're a genre fan, there's probably something in a 2000 AD comic for you. And I think that's actually a wise way to do it instead of being straight science fiction, 
which for a while they were. That they even talk about it in the documentary how well that's not a sci-fi story, so we don't want to print that. And I think that that's narrow-minded, but it's also being honest to your brand at the same time. And we keep coming back to Judge Dredd because he is such a major part of 2000 AD, and he's a major part of this documentary as well. And going all the way back to when I was talking about those guys that I worked with at the movie theater, I don't know if they necessarily got the shadings of dread because they seem to be the kind of guys who, you know, were a little bit to the right of like a Donald Trump. And it seems like they wouldn't have necessarily gotten the irony and just the, how difficult of a character judge dread is. And that was one thing that I think this documentary really helps kind of bring out is that he's not an easy character to get into because times you're rooting for him, other times you're rooting against him. And he really is a, a just such a wonderful thing to play with. And you can put him in so many different situations. And there are, are stories where he barely is there, but his shadow looms large over everything. He's a jerk, basically. Yeah. I, I sent you a PDF of the America story. That was wonderful. And I was so surprised with all the different ways that it went. Because for some reason, the file, it didn't really let me know how many more pages there were to go. So when it took some of those shifts in the story, I was just like, whoa, I would not have pictured that. I mean, because there's the two major shifts, because it feels like a couple different issues put together those you know it was just like right turn you know i never would have seen this coming yeah america is arguably the quintessential judge dread story and the ironic part is he's not even in it that much it's a story more about judge dread than about judge dread if that makes sense that it's a story about his universe and seeing him as an outside participant but it also is such a well-written story with a point america is i think the judge dread story you have to read it's also gorgeously painted too. But but in that, I mean, Judge Dredd is seems to be showing like some sympathy, but then he'll turn right around and be a jerk again. Because what people don't realize is Judge Dredd is the villain of the book. We're following the villain. He is a jackass. He is an asshole. And yet somehow, and this I, I think owes to all the great writers he's had over the years, you want to root for him. Even though you know if you if this guy were real, you'd hate him. And he would probably kill you. Well, yeah, because he, he can. He can do that. If he doesn't kill you, you're going to the cubes. Yeah, and, and he also even plays with the whole, you think he's going to be sympathetic at some times. There's, recently when Mars attacked Judge Dredd, and remember, everything in the Judge Dredd comics is in continuity. There are no Elseworlds stories. There are no pretend stories with Judge Dredd, okay? So... The Mars Attacks Aliens attacked Mega City 1 last year. When that happened, he teamed up with a monkey gangster who helped him with a bunch of stuff in exchange for a full pardon. But then the crimes that the monkey gangster committed while helping Judge Dredd got him sent to the cubes for the rest of his life. That's the kind of character Judge Dredd is. It doesn't matter that you just helped him save a half a million people and you averted Martians destroying the city. You still committed a crime. You're going to the cubes, punk. He walks that line between outright villain, like you said, and then kind of an anti-hero. But I would definitely agree with you. He falls much more to 
the villain aspect. And it's just like, so he's fascinating to watch and fascinating to follow. But yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to root for this guy. You want to, but you don't want to, you don't want this guy to win necessarily because he is the stands for the oppression of everything that you hold dear. Which is why I think they very wisely in the judge dread comics added Anderson Side Judge Anderson, because see, in continuity, I'm going to show my nerdness here. In continuity, side judges are allowed a lot more leeway than regular judges because side judges don't have a choice whether to be a judge. If you're a psychic, you have two options. You go to the judge program or you get lobotomized to remove your psychic abilities, which usually makes you brain dead. So side judges are judges against their will. So that and their sensitivity by you know being size, they're they're afforded a lot more leeway when it comes to you know personal appearance and even opinions. And Anderson, which is Judge Dredd's arguably the, the closest thing he has to a friend, she's a liberal. She's for democracy. She lets people off on technicalities, and that burns Dredd's ass every time she does it. So I think Anderson is a great character to have in there because you actually can root for her. You want Anderson to win. Well, and also I have to say Judge Anderson is definitely a much better character than the Rob Schneider character. That was the other weird thing about about the 95 movie was Diane Lane's character of, of Judge Hershey. In the comics, Judge Hershey is Judge Dredd's boss. So to not only to make Hershey a cadet, but also his love interest was just wrong. Because Hershey becomes chief judge and for the longest time, and she's Dredd's boss and confidant, not his lover and trainee. I'm curious about a couple other judges, because I've heard about like a Judge Cal or like Caligula. Yeah, th- th- there, there was, there was a, a weird thing where the chief judge became became kind of a Caligula type character and this chain of command is strong. So even if he's giving insane dictates down, he's the boss. And so it was kind of a it was like a parody of Caligula, but he was in charge of the judges. Hmm. I want to talk about a really obscure for America 2000 AD incarnation that people need to find, the radio plays. They had a complete series of radio plays that were released. I don't know if they were ever like on the BBC or, or whatnot that you can get. I think 2000 AD sells them on their website. They sell CDs. I got them a little more illicitly than actually buying them. They are amazing. They are simply phenomenal. Not just the stories, but how they play as a radio play. They work so well. And there's a couple of Strontium Dog ones as well as Judge Dredd. And Strontium Dog is played by Simon Pegg. So that's really cool. That's the other weird thing. We need to talk about the the two thousand the two thousand AD movies and whatnot. So Cookie, you got the two Dread movies. You got Hardware unofficially, and then you also technically have Blood Rain, which is a ripoff because they have a character named Durham Red, who is a vampire with the same hairstyle, same arm weapons, and whatnot. Basically. Mike, Google Durham Red and then look at look at Blood Rain the game, and you're gonna go. These are the same character. Blood Rain is a straight up ripoff of Durham Red. Blood Rain was a game. I thought it was just a movie that Uwe Boll directed. It was. It's a series of uh, PS1 and PS2 video games. Oh, okay. And, and then there's the Uwe Boll movies. But so Blood Rain is kind of an unofficial 2000 AD. 
if if you will. And then there there's also a few. There's tons of fan films for 2000 AD stuff. And then you even have the weird Simon Pegg again, the spaced TV show that he did was, if not sponsored by 2000 AD, they allowed it. There's 2000 AD merch all over that. And hell, Shaun of the Dead is a 2000 AD story. Remember Mary from from Shaun of the Dead, the very first zombie that they encountered, the grocery store clerk? How she became a zombie was a 2000 AD story. Really? So Shaun of the Dead is technically a 2000 AD movie as well. Oh, wow. And I never knew that. And I've even watched that movie with like the trivia track on. Yeah, so you you can there's a 2000 AD Mary story. I one the, the American huh. DVD actually includes it as a like a PDF on the on the DVD or something. At least my copy does. 2000 AD has a much larger net than I think people outside of England are able to see. I mean, hell, there was a Young Ones episode. Rick is sitting on the couch reading the, reading the 2000 AD comic, and Vivian comes and tears it in half, and then Rick's still trying to read the half that he has, the top half of the comic. That's a 2000 AD. That's how pervasive it is in England. It was just one of those things that even the Young Ones just threw it in as just a prop. In, in America, we had heavy metal. In England, they had 2000 AD, and I think it's probably the exact opposite over there. They probably are not nearly as familiar with Heavy Metal magazine as we would be generally with 2000 AD, which is kind of funny. Well, other than the movie, I'm not that familiar with Heavy Metal. Like I said, I'd been buying it since long before I should have been able to buy it. Yeah, and that's pretty much uh, one of the reasons why you liked it was the same reason why I really liked the uh, Heavy Metal movie was probably the boobies. Oh, uh, Cinemax played the hell out of that. I loved that. I actually think 2000 AD, instead of trying to make another Dread sequel, which they've already said that they're not going to because of rights issues and whatnot, they should just make a 2000 AD anthology movie. Have a Rogue Trooper story. Have a Strontium Dog story. If they still have the rights, maybe a Judge Dredd story, maybe a Durham Red. You know, they should make a 2000 AD movie. Although the title might be a little bit of a oxymoron nowadays, but you know what I mean. Tell me about some of the fan films that you were talking about. You said there's a ton of Judge Dredd fan films. Are there any good ones out there that people should watch? I'd say the best would be Judge Minty. Judge Minty is arguably the highest quality one, and it's a great story. But there are lots of other ones. There's there's one called The Cursed Earth, which a lot, lot of CGI, a lot of obvious green screen backgrounds and whatnot. I get they didn't have a big budget, but the story is actually pretty decent. There's quite a few fan films out there. There's an animated fan film called Super Fiend about Judge Death. And then there... They even go back, there's one called The Body Shop from 1992, shot on commercial videotape. That's, you know, if you can deal with the fact that it's on consumer videotape, it's not bad. It's just not well made, but that they had technical limitations. So Judge Dredd fan films are not even anything new. And, and it's so funny. 2000 AD seems to be the way Star Wars used to be when it came to fan films before Disney acquired them is if you're not making money off of it, you can do this. Judge Death is the one who I was talking about earlier. Okay, yeah. Judge Death is not an actual judge. Judge Death is actually from an alternate dimension. He's kind of a twisted version from an alternate dimension where all life is a crime. So his whole thing is if you're alive, you've broken the law, so you must be put to death. So yeah, Judge Death is not an actual one of the judges. He is a rogue element from another dimension. 
All right, fair enough. He he looks really fucking cool. I'm actually surprised. I, I'm not surprised for the 95 movie, but Judge Death is the biggest recurring villain in the Judge Dredd universe to the point where I'm really surprised he wasn't one of the ones that they tried to put on film. That kind of surprises me that they didn't take his story first. God, I wish they would make another one of those Dredd movies because that first one was so good. The, the Carl, the I mean, Carl, Carl Urban one was fantastic. Yes. That, that, I, I had... John Wagner even said he loved it, and he didn't say what it was, but I, he said he had one nitpick with the movie, and I know what that nitpick was, swearing. Because in the Judge Dredd comics, they make up their own swear words like drunk, like drock and stuff like that, and in the Judge Dredd movie, they just straight up say shit and fuck. So I can see that was one of that was probably the nitpick he was talking about was the fact that they use real swear words in the movie. I can understand that. Uh, otherwise, I thought Dread 2013 was absolutely amazing. I thought that was a fantastic movie, and I I agree it should have had it should have had a, a sequel because first of all they they made Anderson well they made her blonde but she's a redhead in the comics that minor nitpick but they they gave Dread the three dimensions that the comics sometimes don't like how the fact of remember when she gives that speech about how she knows she's not going to be a judge, but she still has, you know, she, she still has the ability to dispense justice. And then she's going to finish, you know, let's finish this, even though she knows she failed. And dread kind of has this moment where he realizes she actually does have what it takes, even though she technically failed. Right. The comic version doesn't necessarily have that extra dimension to it. And I actually liked that, you know, dread, grew as a character over the course of this movie the other thing i loved about it was they played it like this wasn't some he's gotta save the world from a nuke or anything this was just a day this was an average day for judge dread i liked that this was just a day in judge dread's life yeah and the whole idea of the whole peach trees complex and everything and just being this microcosm of their world and him you know it's almost like a video game like working his way up through the levels and everything but it just worked it worked so well it did it was the soundtrack was amazing the effects worked i thought i didn't see it in 3d but for a 3d the slow-mo actually gave an excuse for why some of the stuff mm-hmm. was in 3d so that was awesome I thought Carl Urban and Olivia Thursby did a fantastic job. Leah Headey, who I thought was so super hot in the Terminator TV show, was so vile in this that it was it was an amazing performance on her part. And you know, it just it, it was a movie that came together, and it probably shouldn't have worked as well as it did. And I'm very surprised that they got Garland to talk about it because I know he didn't have necessarily the best experience. I heard that he was locked out of the editing room at the end and this kind of stuff, had it taken away from him a little bit. I'd still be very curious to know what he would have done differently with the film, but what ended up showing was just fantastic. Well, I think what he did was wisely played down some of the more fantastical elements. You have the psychic elements and whatnot, but stuff like Judge Death, and then you also you, you have – there's magic sort of in the Judge Dread comics and whatnot. I think they wisely played it as almost a straight science fiction story with the exception of Anderson's somewhat psychic abilities, and I think that's what you needed to do. That was the way you had to play it. They weren't really dealing with the mutants like the 95 film. The 1995 film used the mutants a lot in, in, in that, and I 
and clones and all this, I think they wisely stuck with mainly being a science fiction story and it being arguably realistic. That was the film's strength. I don't know what happened, and I don't know what Garland's original intentions were, these kind of things. But the whole idea of like you know locking the creator out of the editing room or or, or all that kind of stuff, that's a bad thing most of the time. But I will say every once in a great while, it is fan, it is probably for the project's best interest to take something away from the director if they get too up their own ass. I don't think Garland was too up his own ass, but when you look at something like the director's cut of Donnie Darko and you're just like, yeah, the shorter cut, that's better because this guy was way too in love with himself to make the, the, the longer cut is a piece of shit, but the shorter cut, okay, good. Yeah. You cut out all this other horse shit that you didn't need in there. Well, I think the biggest example of that would be Quentin Tarantino and Oliver Stone. Both of them, I've hated almost every, with the exception of Natural Born Killers on Stone's part, I've hated every director's cut he's done. I prefer the theatrical cut or like as much as I didn't like Death Proof, the DVD version is unwatchable. That extra 30 minutes put back in is unbearable because Tarantino was just so in love with his own footage. He couldn't bear to see it left out. So Tarantino and Oliver Stone to me are two directors where the director's cut isn't necessarily the better version. I can't imagine that movie being any longer than it was, because that was just excruciating in the theater. Yeah, he put the entire missing reel back in for the DVD, and it's almost all oh. dialogue. Christ. Was, Is there any more romantic texting going on in that? There, There's them kind of stealing a car, sort of, from a guy they're buying it from, and, and then, it, oh, it's... It's un- I saw it once on the DVD, and I just went, yeah, I'll stick with the theatrical cut if I'm ever going to watch this again. But I-, I read an interview with Tarantino, maybe Video Watchdog, where he made a comment like the footage was just too good to not be seen. And it's like you are way too far up your own ass when you make comments like that. Yeah. Well, you know, he and he and Tim Lucas, they're, they're good buddies. So I actually like Tim Lucas. but I liked him until the spider baby thing happened, and then his comments were just like, Wow, are you that fucking deluded? Well, he did admit later that he screwed up. So, you know, it, it might be a mea culpa, but he, he did admit he was wrong. Yeah, I've also heard that he... That'll go on the cutting room floor yeah. as well. Because we don't want to libel Mr. Lucas, or I don't want to. Especially because I've tried to work for him a few times. So overall, would you recommend Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD? I would, and to two different audiences. Because I think the... The strength of the documentary is it works if even if you're like a new comic fan or maybe you've never picked up a 2000 AD issue in your life, it gives you a pretty good history and an overview so you're, you are not lost. At the same time, if you are a 2000 AD fan, it gives you all of the background information you've always wondered. So I think it works on two different levels for two different audiences. Now, if you're not a comic book fan, you're not going to give a shit. But if you're a comic book fan at all, you don't have to be a 2000 AD fan to enjoy the documentary because, I mean, Mike, you not having really read 2000 AD, I'm going to guess you were probably fascinated just the behind the scenes of how this magazine kept going to highs and then fucking itself up again and again and again, weren't you? Oh, yeah. And I, I was really reminded a lot of that uh, documentary about Tower Records that we covered on the show a few months ago. Just that whole idea of a workplace, a business, and how this business 
happened and some of the infighting that was going on and just the way that things changed, the way that the world changing had to change the business. So that that stuff is fascinating to me. And then also that you were talking about creative people and the way that they're reacting to things and the way that they are working with one another and just, you know, the going back to those credit card things again, just the whole idea of like, Oh, now you can see who's really good and maybe who's not so good. And then it you know, would create competitions amongst themselves and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is really fascinating. So just the work, just the business itself, that was great. And then add on top of it, the whole story of Thatcher's England in the early eighties and the, the punk movement of the seventies and just the way that, uh, the world was changing and the magazine had to change with it. I was like, yeah, this is really, really fascinating. And the way that the characters inside of the magazine, the creations themselves dealt with the outside world too. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is pretty fascinating stuff. Well, there's also some of the behind the scenes machinations that show a very different time in the comic industry. Like the original artwork was not returned to the artists and was literally at one point being used to sop up mud at the entrance of the door. It was, it was being oh. used as a floor mat because the artwork meant so little. It had already been printed, so they figured, why save this stuff? It's paper. We'll use it as paper. And how they were ripping it up and using it as scratch paper and things like that. Or Now, the American comic industry did this, too, until it was deemed illegal. How, how Fleetway at the time, or it might have been IPC, actually owned the characters. They would have your contract on the back of your paycheck. So to, when you, you signed your paycheck, that was signing away your rights to the work you just did. DC Comics was famous for that in the 70s and 80s as well until that was deemed to be illegal because you're asking people at that point to give up their creation after they've done the work. And that's not how that legally can work. That's some real sleazy, underhanded shit that I love hearing about people getting caught doing. It shows you a different time in the comic industry and how similar the American and British comic markets were if they were both pulling the same sleazy shit at the same time, too. For all their differences, there were definitely a lot of similarities. And I'm really hoping that that whole idea of the comparison of the British comics and the U.S. comics that they were talking about in the interview, I hope that that really comes out because, as an extra on the DVD or something because that sounds absolutely fascinating to me, the whole idea of just the cultures being so different and how their artwork reflects that. Oh, absolutely. Like, like I said, just if you pick up some of the American reprints, the comic book-sized ones, you'll see just how different it is. Like, read reviews of those when they came over. American audiences didn't get that, and I'm assuming like if, if Heavy Metal or Epic Illustrated was brought over to the UK, they probably didn't get the American stylings of that either. It's just it's cultural differences. We all come from, come from the same origin place, you know, since we literally come from England, and it's just so weird how much the cultures are different. Yeah, and I kind of hope that they can maintain their differences in this like you know, global community that we all live in now where culture just seems to be like a, another thing that we export. And I kind of appreciate that there are, you know, laws in place where it's like, oh yeah, you can't play more than X number of American hours of TV, you know, on your show, on your channel or anything. And just the whole idea of like the, the 
Canadian content laws and stuff. I'm just like, yeah, you guys really do need to protect yourself from American culture because we will take over everything if we can. And, you know, in 20 years hence, it might be the same thing with Chinese culture where we're just like, yeah, remember when we had like American characters and now we're just all watching like wuxia films and stuff. Well, as much as I dislike Joss Whedon, that's one of the brilliant things he worked into Firefly that that Chinese culture had so integrated into, you know, American earth culture, whatever you want to call it, that like they swore in Chinese and half of the writing was was uh, like a mixture of Chinese and English. And I thought that was actually kind of prescient. Yeah, that was good. And that was something that was in uh, that movie Looper as well, at least for a little bit. But I think they ended up taking some of that stuff out where it was uh, learn Chinese rather than learning French. Well, Looper was a different case where they actually shot scenes specifically for the Chinese market. So those were scenes of pandering, really. That wasn't so much the story. It was, we need a Chinese angle to get Chinese people to go see this movie. Because we need Chinese dollars. Definitely check out Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD, whether you are a huge comic nerd, whether you read 2000 AD, or whether you just have a passing interest in how culture was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, coming from our friends from across the pond, I found it absolutely fascinating, and I would watch this movie again in a heartbeat. I just hope they send us DVDs when it comes out in America. That would be nice. I know you like your physical media. Damn straight. Never going to give it up. Never going to let me down. There will be pertinent links to where you can pick up your copy of Future Shock, where you can find out more about the film, over at our website, projection-booth.com. Go on over there. I'll also have links over to where you can listen to Josh's stuff. Josh, why don't you give a big shout-out to where people can find out more about you and listen to your many, many, many podcasts. 1201beyond.com. There's the many podcasts. There's my insane ramblings that are called writings. There's my night flight rip homage. 1201 Beyond, the show. It's all at 1201 Beyond. I'm all about the branding, Mike. You even have it branded on your arm, if I remember correctly. I do not. I have no tattoos, but my girlfriend is trying to talk me into getting one, and I said... If I get one, the first one will probably be my own logo on my arm. For me, I want to get into heaven, and following the rules in Leviticus, I cannot get a tattoo. Just wait till you go to prison. You'll have a teardrop and maybe some other stuff, a swastika tattooed on your ass or something. If daddy's going to take care of me, I'm going to have to be branded. You're dead, they ever seen a mess.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. I am the Lord.